how much would you pay to avoid morning traffic? Why are plane tickets to Boise so expensive? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of The Indicator. In every episode, we take on a new unexpected idea to help you make sense of the day's news. Listen every afternoon on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Errol Morris might be the most accomplished documentary filmmaker ever. He made The Thin Blue Line, The Fog of War. A brilliant guy, really opinionated, too. But even though he kind of specializes in nuanced, sympathetic depictions of real people, Errol Morris probably wouldn't call himself a fan of human beings in general. Part of our species, and I really do believe that this is an extremely rotten species. I don't care what you've read, what paeons to man, what encomiums to the human experience. I think it's a pretty miserable, miserable species. But we do have one thing going for us, and that is that we have some knowledge of truth. We have some knowledge that there is a world outside of ourselves and that perhaps we can come to know something about it through effort, through investigation, through radiocination, whatever you want to call it. It's bullseye. Coming up, Errol Morris joins me for an in-depth discussion of the nature of truth, of camera angles, and his new documentary slash fictional feature slash uncategorizable film series, miniseries, Wormwood, which he compares to food. I sold it as the everything bagel um, because I said, I'm going to put everything in this. I'm going to put drama, reenactment. Caraway seeds. Everything but raisins. (laughs) He'll also tell me how after 40 years of filmmaking, he struggles to reinvent himself every time he makes a movie. I like to think that each time I'm making one of these things, that I can change it up. I can do something different. I can reinvent the form. I can f*** with people. Then later, our pal Meryl Garvis from Tune Yards talks about the song that changed her life. And I'll tell you why the movie The Commitments proves you should just go make something. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Errol Morris. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. He's the kind of guy whose work gets shown in film schools all the time. He's contributed that much to the field of documentary making. But have you seen Gates of Heaven or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control or the short documentaries he made for ESPN? All of them are really really wonderful. He has a way of painting portraits of people. Nuanced, funny, tragic, fascinating. Take his latest work. It's a miniseries called Wormwood. It's out now on Netflix. It's a bit of a departure for Errol. First of all, instead of hiding behind his signature Interotron, the machine that he invented to project himself in front of the camera lens so that it would seem like the person being interviewed was making eye contact with the person watching the film. He's on camera in this movie. 
He also tells this true story substantially with actors. But it's also classic Errol Morris in a lot of ways. It's about Frank Olson, a former CIA biochemist who died mysteriously decades ago, and about his son, Eric, who's still alive and has dedicated much of his life to finding out the truth about his father. Let's take a listen to a little bit from Wormwood. In this scene, Eric Olson is talking about reading the results of a 1975 government investigation into his dad's death. When the story came out in the Rockefeller Commission report, I get this phone call from my brother-in-law. You should read the Washington Post today. So I ran down to out-of-town news in Harvard Square, get the Washington Post, (laughs) read this thing, and I'm just totally blown away. There it is on the front page, suicide revealed. The Rockefeller Commission has discovered that an Army scientist, after being drugged with LSD, jumped out the window of a New York hotel. How many scientists could be jumping out of windows in 1953 in New York City? This has got to be my father. But wait, they didn't call us. They didn't notify us. They didn't say it's your father. How do you know? Maybe it isn't. Aaron Morris, welcome back to Bullseye. I'm very happy to see you. Thank you for having me here. You put me in this box. Yeah, well, this is called a recording studio. (laughs) But it looks like a box. It is a weird, it is a weird, like, modular recording studio that I bought on Craigslist. I will admit to that. Um, I hope you didn't overpay for it. No, I underpaid for it, if anything. Yeah, this is this is a bargain basement recording box. There's no doubt about that. Um, Errol, one of the things that happens in a lot of your documentaries is we hear someone, we see someone speaking for themselves about their own experience. And because of the way that you shoot them, um, they are looking right at us. They're making eye contact with us in a way that is unusual in documentary film because you have created a a machine that's a little bit like a teleprompter uh, that puts your face as you interview the subject in the line of sight of the camera directly. Essentially, it's two teleprompters, but you're close. Okay. (laughs) Just one teleprompter off. Um, In this film, we see you on camera talking to your subject. You were shocked? I was I was genuinely shocked because I had, you know, from watching even, you know, you made an entire television program called First Person, which was built around a person staring into the barrel of the camera and talking about their themselves and their experience, right? You've directed you've made a living making television commercials with that premise you know you've done so much and mostly all we get of you is you kind of barking at someone from off screen yes a little bit i don't often think of it as barking but have it your way <laughs> <laughs> so why is why are you on camera asking questions in this movie One of the reasons, if there is any reason, and there may not be any reason to make documentaries, but if there is any reason. Uh, I hope for your sake there is. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. You get this opportunity to reinvent 
the form every time you make one. In principle, it's possible. And in principle, maybe that's what you should be doing. I hate to make this into a kind of moral edict, but I like to think that each time I'm making one of these things, that I can change it up. I can do something different. I can reinvent the form. I can f*** with people. Why? Why not? <laughs> How does it end up being different? I mean, we can get into the fact that the new movie also has, you know, much more developed uh, dramatic narrative actorly bits than any of your other films. But even just this one part... M more actorly dramatic bits. It's also known as drama. Yeah. But there's plenty of drama in your uh, in your interviews as well. I was trying to figure out what the word what's the what's the word for they sometimes they call it narrative, but nonfiction films are narrative as well. It's tricky because Wormwood in particular demands some new kind of nomenclature. Um, how do you really even describe this? I sold it as the everything bagel. Uh, because I said, I'm going to put everything in this. I'm going to put drama, reenactment. Caraway seeds. Uh, everything but raisins. Yeah. Raisins are gross. Raisins don't belong in bagels. They're okay by themselves. I don't mind a raisin by itself, but I don't like a raisin added to almost anything else. There Oatmeal, maybe. There you go. Yeah. So, but let's talk specifically about the raisins with constraints. <laughs> let's talk about the interview parts specifically first before we get before we get into uh, yeah the acting parts. How is it? Different? I'm at your mercy. I mean, I'm in this box. What yeah. am I going to do when you're sh when you're <laughs> shooting with when you're shooting as you did with like uh, a million cameras in this new movie, like ten or something like ten, that, right? So you're shooting this interview with 10 different cameras. Someone asked me why 10. I said because it was one more than nine. There you go. So you get into the, you get into the editing studio and you're starting to put together the film. What was different about having those 10 shots, one of which is you on camera or maybe more than one of which is you on camera, um, than when you are primarily using this eye contact down the barrel shot? that has been the signature of many of your movies? What's different? Well, I hate people who repeat questions, but I'll repeat it anyway. What's different? It's a different experience. Um, in the Interatron, I'm hidden away behind a second teleprompter. And it's almost as if... I used to describe smoking as a way of simplifying the world. Because when you're smoking, there are only three things that you have to consider. There's you, the cigarette, and the rest of the world is the ashtray. <laughs> On the Interatron, there's you, your subject, and you're really closely connected. Uh, the amazing thing about it is the rest of the world just vanishes. It's... Intense, personal, focused. Um, moving away from that, there were a whole number of reasons. Um, 
you know, part of it is the desire not to be a one-trick pony, even if I am a one-trick pony. I don't want to be seen as such. I like to think, oh, he's so inventive. He is always trying something new and something different. Well, we had these 10 cameras, and I've been playing with multiple cameras over the years. And the protagonist, I think it's a fair way to describe him, of Wormwood, Eric Olson, Frank Olson's son, came in. He was nervous about the interview. He saw the 10 cameras, or maybe he didn't register all 10 of them, but he saw there are a lot of cameras here. Oh, my. And sat down, and he decided just to surrender. I thought of it not unlike a cornered animal who realizes that there is no hope. Just give up. I mean, that's a little bit like what the effect of the and Teratron is. No. Yes, it is. No. It is. I think that when you are shooting someone, you know, ordinarily in this kind of interview documentary situation, maybe you're shooting somebody with two cameras or one camera behind the interviewer and, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe there's a master, there's a, there's a shot of the two people talking together and there's one that's over the shoulder of the interviewer or there's a kind of talking head shot, you know. And in those situations, I think if you are the person on camera, you are very aware of your performance to those cameras. And 10 cameras or that Interatron camera are both ways of making the camera disappear for the subject. Either with the Interatron, it is because that subject almost immediately feels like they're talking directly to a person and the camera has almost disappeared – and with 10 cameras, it's like there's no camera to address because there's just too many cameras. It's like overwhelm. God, you've described this really, really well. <laughs> I'm glad you agree with it because I said a lot of stuff. <laughs> I do agree. Um, I didn't realize this at first when I s started using the Interatron that it produced this effect I mean, there's no r way to really predict this kind of thing without actually doing it. But you don't see the camera anymore. All you see is my face in limbo. And I often thought of it like the old AT&T ads, and they'd say the, uh, the next best thing to being there. And I would always think that it was um, incorrectly expressed being there is the next best thing to using the telephone because you're limiting stuff. You're focusing on a certain aspect of communication. Like, do I really need to see you now? Is that really necessary? With the Interatron, the camera vanishes for all intents and purposes. It's gone. The crew is gone. Everything is gone except God. What a nightmare. Everything is gone except for me. <laughs> <laughs> what a delight, Errol. Not a nightmare. Quite the opposite. Why, thank you. Uh, the multiple cameras, it's different again. Uh, it certainly changes the way in which an interview is edited. Perhaps that's even obvious. You have all these angles to choose from. Um, and on the Avid, it's made really quite simple. You just press a button 
and you can go through the cameras one by one by one by one. But at the heart of this story is this idea of collage. Perhaps at the heart of every real detective story is this idea of collage. Because what is a detective doing? In effect, he's doing something that we're all doing all the time. It's trying to put the world together in a way that makes sense. And it amounts to bits and pieces. You know, the detritus of the world are experiences uh, glued, stitched, stapled together in a way that hopefully forms a picture of what's out there in reality. Uh, the whole collage idea is a central part of Wormwood. A collage of different kinds of forms from uh, ar archival to home movies uh, to these interviews with multiple cameras to drama. And I tried to emphasize that in the way in which every part of it was shot. The graphics are collaged. The interviews are collaged. Uh, the drama itself actually has collage elements as well. So why am I proud of it? 25, it's now over 25 years ago, it shocks me. When I made The Thin Blue Line, I tried something really different. Uh, I asked Philip Glass to write a score. It's not something that you really do that often in documentary. At that time, it was something that was close to unheard of. And I used stylized reenactments of the murder, which is at the center of the story, the murder of a Dallas police officer on a barren roadway in West Dallas. Now you see it everywhere. I'm reminded of this line in Conan the Barbarian. Used to be just another snake cult. Now you see it everywhere. <laughs> and that's certainly true of the style of the Thin Blue Lion. It's endlessly imitated, copied. Here, I think I've done something even more innovative and more dramatic. I've tried to stitch together so many different elements so many elements that I wondered, is this going to even work? Is this going to be confusing? Is this going to be totally beyond the pale? <laughs> and I believe it works. Am I the best judge of this? Oh, wait a minute. I'm promoting myself here. Of course it works. It's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> I I feel like there is a there is this... One of the great moments in Wormwood, at least for me, a, a moment that really surprised me is Eric, the son of the man who's died, whose mystery the film partly tries to unravel, is talking about I, – I, I think he's talking if, – if I remember correctly, he's talking about visiting the White House. He's invited to the White House uh, not long after his father dies – uh, because well, or not long after they they've start to realize there's something weird about his father having died. And it's because the government essentially wants to give him something uh, to land on that will keep him from bothering them more. I think it's called throwing him a crumb. Yes. And he essentially kind of 
he apologizes for the fact that his memory of these events is not purely narrative, that he does not remember the sequence of events and every event in them and remember them in order, but rather that he simply remembers certain impressions of the events. And this is, you know, something that happened 35, 40 years ago. And that that little moment in the film, I mean, that's that's what memory is. Like, no one remembers their lives narratively, I don't think. I certainly don't. We should get down on our knees. Uh, if you're a believer, you could go ahead and thank God. If not, thank anyone of your choice. Thank God that we remember so little. You were a private investigator for quite a while. Um, yeah. Do you feel like the purpose of getting involved in a mystery is because you want to solve it? You want the satisfaction of, you know, completing a puzzle? Well, yeah. Um, I'm tempted to say, duh. <laughs> but that wouldn't be nice. Um, occasionally, you get paid to do this kind of thing. I was paid as a private detective, but okay, I'll fess up. Was my primary motivation money? No. I'm not even sure what my primary motivation was. Curiosity, a desire to learn something that I didn't know. Why people search for the truth or even search for any kind of answers, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Part of our species, and I really do believe that this is an extremely rotten species. I don't care what you've read, what peons to man, what encomiums to the human experience. I think it's a pretty miserable, miserable species. But we do have one thing going for us, and that is that we have some knowledge of truth. We have some knowledge that there is a world outside of ourselves and that perhaps we can come to know something about it through effort, through investigation, through radiocination, whatever you want to call it. I have no idea what the last word you said was. It. I know what it means. But was that radiocination? Thinking. Got it. I'm a public radio host here. I'm supposed to hold my own when people start using big words when I went to public school, you know? Yeah. Well, my favorite of them is... Um, uh, hippopotamo monstro sesquipedaliophobia. Which is? Fear of large words. <laughs> <laughs> more of my interview with Errol Morris after a break. He'll tell me more about his new project, Wormwood, and how for him it talks about a crucial and really dark turning point, not just in his story, but in American history. It's Bullseye. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. A new year has begun, and if you're setting new goals for your business, you need the right people on your team. 
ZipRecruiter has transformed how you find them. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. Then they actively look for the most qualified candidates and invite them to apply. That's why 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in the studio with the legendary director, Errol Morris. His latest work is called Wormwood. It's a miniseries that's available to stream right now on Netflix. I feel like part of what you're doing in Wormwood is offering the thing that people often want from uh, a story about a mysterious criminal act, which is offering up the idea that you will get the satisfaction of knowing the truth in the end and that the truth will be an interesting surprise. Why did you make that kind of movie? I mean, like The Thin Blue Line, for example. The Thin Blue Line is, uh, you know, that is your investigation of a murder that reveals a surprising truth that was very important in the world and very clearly demonstrated by the film um, and your investigation. There's nothing quite that clear in Wormwood. I was lucky in The Thin Blue Line. You don't know where a story is going to take you. I'm not inventing the story. I'm uncovering uh, a story. Um, You know, it's the real difference... uh, between uh, inventing a toaster oven uh, and finding one. Uh, In the Thin Blue Line, I stumbled on a case by accident and pursued it obsessively until I had answers. And there were answers that I could find. It's a detective's, I was going to say, wet dream. I don't think that's so incorrect. What do you dream of? You dream of cracking an extraordinarily complex and difficult case. In this case, a man who came within two days of being strapped into old Sparky, the Texas electric chair, uh, and executed for a crime he most certainly did not commit. Uh, The opportunity to show he was innocent, to get him released from jail, and to show who actually did it. You don't get that opportunity every day. Most cases don't resolve so neatly. There's this fantasy, probably a fantasy created by detective fiction, that somehow if you dig deeply enough, um, if you work hard enough, scratch around here and there and uh, that somehow an answer is going to pop out of the machinery. It's a fantasy I share because what motivates you as a detective is this idea that you're going to arrive at some powerful conclusion. You're going to reveal something that no one else knows about and you're going to prove it. You're going to prove it beyond, you know, what's the expression, a shadow of a doubt. But the world is strange. It's almost as we move from past to present to future, the world is constantly exfoliating. It's shedding bits and scraps of things. 
And from those bits and scraps, we try to reconstruct a picture of the world, a picture of, of what might have happened. But what if the evidence is destroyed? What if it's been adulterated? What if we have only a piece of it, but we don't even know that it's a piece of it? We don't even know what's missing. Uh, what then? Is it always possible for incomplete information to reconstruct what the world is like? Why do you think so many of your films are retrospective? Why do you think they're about people's remembrances of events in the past or people's kind of introspections about the past and themselves rather than, you know, why aren't you... Uh, in the moment? Why aren't you at a teen, teen basketball tournament uh, taping interviews with kids who might end up winning and then making a story out of that? Sports suck. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you made some really great movies about sports. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I like sports, Errol. And also, my condolences. Also, <laughs> um, you know, history, and history does fascinate me. I'm going to tell everybody listening to this a secret. H history is retrospective. You're looking back into the past. We all are looking back into the past. That's all we have really to go on. The present is too fleeting. And the future, who in hell knows about the future? I've been obsessed. What's it called? I'm going to use a big word again, and I'm going to be punished for it. I know it. Epistemology, which is the study of how we know things. It's an obsession with how we know what we know and whether we know anything or how reliable is the knowledge that we have. Is it really knowledge or is it some spurious thing? Is it, to coin a phrase, fake news? And all of Wormwood is about this search. It's, it's a, a search through various lockboxes, the lockbox of memory, of history, to try to understand the nature of our obsessions and where they lead us. I like Wormwood because it's like a set of Chinese boxes. There's a story within a story within a story within a story. There's the story of Frank Olson, an army bioweapons scientist who was experimenting with all kinds of lethal bioweapons, including anthrax. It's the story of his son, who could never accept the government explanation for why his father died or how he died. And it's, you know, I'll fess up here. It's my obsession with Eric and his quest, a quest which I strongly identify with. And in many ways, it became my quest as well. He asks this question. It's very near the end of the film. Is it a rhetorical question? I'm not sure. What is this about? Now, he's talking about 60 years plus of scratching around, trying to get answers to this mystery. And he gives us an answer, a partial answer, that this is about America. What did indeed happen to this country? A question which I ask myself repeatedly nowadays. I won't say why, but I'll leave it to the listener's imagination. Uh, and Eric says that in the 50s, this is a story that goes back to the origins of the Cold War. Look, we won this war. 
We, we won the war against Germany and, and Japan. And then we descended into a world of second guessing, paranoia, and lies. Okay, this was going on forever. But what happened in this period of time that turned America's government into a secret government? And the question, can you really truly have a democracy when the government has to habitually, repeatedly, unremittingly, too many big words I know, lie to its citizens? I think a lot about my dad who is in his early 70s and was in the military in the early 60s, came home and worked for decades thereafter in the peace movement. And the relationship that he had with the FBI agents who uh, bugged his phone, he, tell, he often told me the story when I was a kid of having problems on his line and then someone saying, I'm sorry about that, Mr. Thorne. We'll get this fixed for you. And him waving at them from their office across the street from his office, <laughs> you know, where they were always standing in the window. Um, and that there is this kind of like that particularly in that time, there's this very vivid, intense back and forth between the democratic ideals and this idea that there was an existential threat to the country that came from whatever, social change, uh, communists, uh, people with long hair, like whatever it is, that it was like this terrifying time. And, and to me, as a 36-year-old, that always seemed like a thing that came from my dad. You know, I was like, oh, that's a thing of my dad's life, not a thing of my life and in the in you know the last couple of years i have felt untethered like uh, there was a time when i felt like i feel like i've got a pretty good handle on what my government is and uh the ways in which it doesn't doesn't represent me you know and uh i feel differently about it now there's something so strange so disorienting when you live in a world where the government that supposedly represents you shares none of your values. What does that mean? I'm not even sure what it means. It leads to a kind of anger, despair. But we do seem to be living in an almost hopeless time. Sorry to be such a downer. You're going to throw me out of the box any minute now. You said something in a different interview that that really blew my mind, which was you said, well, you know, we we as people don't ever think that we're wrong. Like that's not a way that we think of the world. I'm wrong. Yeah. I assume that almost everything I think is wrong. And I just hope people will be nice. Let's listen to a scene from Wormwood, uh, the new – film slash Netflix series from uh, my guest Errol Morris 
And this is one of the narrative, recreational, professionally acted, scripted portions of the film. It's a something-something. Yeah, okay. One of the something-somethings from the movie. Frank Olson, who is a government scientist who died in mysterious circumstances, is played by Peter Sarsgaard. He, in this scene, uh, has just gone to what amounts to uh, uh, like a hunting lodge retreat with some uh, folks from the CIA, some colleagues. And he's this is in the in the woods in Maryland, you know, like a ways from Washington D.C. And Tim Blake Nelson plays uh, one of the CIA guys, and he's speaking to them, and things start to feel weird for Frank Peter Sarsgaard. Gentlemen, TSS has embarked on a new program called. MK Ultra. This program is designed to help us to better understand human behavior, who we are, what we do, and more importantly, what we could reveal. In this Cold War, the most dangerous weapon is information. When a few scared boys confess on the world stage, it diminishes our country's credibility. We must find a way to contain these lies. You are the men who know the secrets. We are the men who keep the secrets. Our coexistence depends on trust. We see that uh, Frank has been given a cocktail with LSD in it. What did you decide in making this movie was your responsibility as a documentarian when you are directing actors in a scripted scene? My responsibility, whether it's with actors or with anything else, is a responsibility to the truth. I'm telling a story about something that really happened happened in the world, happened in 1953, a historical event, if you want to think of it that way. One of the oddities of this story, let me backtrack quickly. When I made The Thin Blue Line and I used reenactments, the reenactments weren't purporting to show you what really happened. They were illustrations more often than not of lies, things that people said that were untrue, accusations that were made that were false. And the reenactments takes you back into those claims, not reality, but into those claims so you can think about them. You can think about their truth or their falsity. And the aesthetics are pretty specifically non-directly representational too. Like you see it and it does not feel like you are looking at a picture of truth. It looks like you are looking at a picture of memory – you know, that's a nice whatever. thing to say. I like to think that's that's the feeling that is produced. Well, here there's a different kind of thing going on. Uh, when the Rockefeller Commission, which was set up by President General Ford, uh, uh, Gerald Ford, when they 
released their report for the very first time. Frank Olson had gone out that window in 1953. We're now in 1975. The report comes out early in 1975, speaking about an unnamed army scientist who plunged to his death and had been given surreptitiously by the CIA a dose of LSD. So this becomes public knowledge. Eric, the son, is a graduate student at Harvard. He runs to out-of-town news, which is the main news kiosk in Harvard Square, picks up the Washington Post, sees the article, knows, of course, immediately, this is my dad. And within days, he's in the Oval Office of the White House, speaking with Gerald Ford and, oddly enough, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, he meets with the then director of Central Intelligence, uh, William Colby. And at the president's direction, Colby gives him a pile, hundreds of pages of documents. The lawyers subsequently referred to them as the Colby documents. And in these documents, it's like a filmmaker's dream. They're all of these first-person accounts of what happened to Frank Olson. However, were they true? You don't know. You don't know whether Colby gave the family all of the documents. The CIA director said, here, these are all of the documents on Frank Olson. Do we believe them? The CIA tells you something. Do you just take it on faith? Mm, not so much. I mean, it also means that the only thing that we can see in the film that we can purely trust is, in a way, Eric the son's personal experience. That, and, you know, the way that he interprets his own personal experience, not as literal truth. We can trust it as, uh, in a way, like a sincere representation of his personal experience, his own... What he went through. And his... that kind of changes what the movie is about in a way. How so? Well, I mean, it, this is, it could be a movie that is purely about determining the literal truth of this story. That's part of it, certainly. But substantially, it becomes about, because we can look at Eric on screen speaking to us and speaking to you as you try and discover this other story, the story that he is connected to, his father's story. Because Eric is there in front of us, it becomes a story about Eric in a way. I agree. There's so many stories. It doesn't have to be story A or story B or story C. Um, you know, I go back to the Russian dolls. There's stories within stories within stories. The story of Frank Olson and the Korean War were biological weapons used by the United States in Korea. A story about a son who is repeatedly lied to by his family and by the U.S. government, the highest echelons of the U.S. government, including the president of the United States. And a story about the government versus us, a whole set of very powerful stories woven together. Uh, I feel lucky to have stumbled on this. And that's the only way to describe it. When I go into a story 
it's really not so different from a detective being assigned to a case. Why are you being assigned to a case as a detective? Because somebody, maybe even you, wants to discover something you don't know. Um, you want to learn something. You want to figure something out. And that's certainly true of Wormwood. Still more with Errol Morris after a break. Stay with us. Plus, later on in the show, Meryl Garbus of the band Tune Yards tells us about the song that changed her life. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from WordPress.com. Creating your website on WordPress helps your customers find you, remember you, and connect with you. WordPress has hundreds of beautiful designs, the ability to add a custom domain name, and features to make your business more visible online. Get 15% off your new website today at wordpress.com slash bullseye. Each and every morning, there are a whole lot of places you can look for news. Try this instead, though. Listen to Up First. Up First is the morning news podcast from NPR. One tap, and 10 minutes later, you have started the day informed. Find Up First on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the director, Errol Morris. His latest project is a miniseries called Wormwood. It's out now on Netflix. I mean, what Wormwood made me think of was the scenes in a fictional detective show. Um, I was thinking of The Wire, where there's a corkboard in the office. And the corkboard has the pictures of all the people. And, there are always corkboards. Right, right. It's a visual representation. You know, it's, a, it's an easy way to show uh, what's. You want corkboards, you want pictures. You want push pins and you want strings. Yeah, and what Wormwood made me think of as Eric the son is talking about having done his graduate work in the collage method of psychology is what if the corkboard didn't have the strings? You know, that you're putting these things that you're putting these things next to each other and in a way asking the viewer to provide their own interpretation of their relationship between each other. Like, instead of that perfect formal form that we usually, you know, that we usually expect from a detective story. Uh, I wrote a book about a detective story that, that I was part of and that has obsessed me over the years involving Jeffrey McDonald, a book called Wilderness of Error. Uh, it comes from a, an Edgar Allan Poe quote in a story, William Wilson, where the protagonist says, I was looking for an oasis of fatality amidst a wilderness of error, a theme which I closely identify with, a story that I could examine, I could scrutinize, I could obsess over, but I couldn't crack it in the end. I could crack part of it, but not all of it. And Wormwood is very much like that. Well, Errol, thank you for taking this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to have you back on the show. Is it called Bullseye because you plan to shoot me at the end? Yes. Oh, good. Good. Now the name makes complete sense. Yeah. Errol Morris, his amazing film or miniseries or whatever it is, is called Wormwood. It's on Netflix. 
uh, right now. You can watch it there. Also, there's a bunch of Errol's movies that are among my favorites of all time. I will take this opportunity to highlight, number one, a series called It's Not Crazy, It's Sports that he did for the now-defunct website Grantland. You can get those on places where you buy online video. They're short documentaries about various kind of obsessive, weird sports stories, and they're amazing. And another is one of Morris's first films. It's called Vernon, Florida. He went to this town to investigate a story that I think was about insurance fraud or something and just ended up running the camera on the people who lived there. And it is one of the funniest, most beautiful 45 minutes of film that you could possibly watch. So, Vernon, Florida, it's not crazy at sports. Hot tips, plus Wormwood. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Tune Yards is a band fronted by Meryl Garbus. And they're a really fun band, really amazing to watch. In a classic Tune Yards song, you will find this incredibly dense collage of sounds, live percussion and looped vocal noises and melodies that are influenced by people like Fela Kuti or, or Philip Glass or ESG. Tune Yards broke through in 2011 with a killer single called Business. They've got their fourth record coming out a little later this month. It's called I Can Feel You Creep Into My Private Life. It's an album about growth. It's about social and environmental justice, too. And as always, it's a blast to dance to. The band is based out of Oakland, but Merrill's originally from New England. When we asked her about the song that changed her life, she took us back to when she was a kid. The song was called Moliva. It's by a South African singer named Johnny Clegg. It was one of the first Afro-pop songs she ever heard, and it had a huge influence on Tunyard's sound. And the whole thing basically happened by accident. I think the first time I heard this song, well, I know the first time was on a cassette tape that I believe was given to me because on one side it had the Indigo, Girl, Indigo Girls. I think the tape got to me really when I was a kid, so it must have been given to me. I know it was given to me by my aunt and uncle, uh, Lucy and David, and I probably was, I want to say, 13 14, something like that. And on the B side was this album I'd never heard of before uh, by Johnny Clegg. The first thing with the song is the intro. And I don't know if it's an actual accordion or if it's like a synthesized accordion because this was made in the 80s. So there's a lot that they were experimenting with in terms of new technology. But there's something just about the very intro that just feels like you're about to be bathed in, in sound. Oh, 
everything was different about it to me. Like even the fact that the the snare hits aren't on the two and four. You know, it's not like ding dang ka ding ding dang kanta. It's like it's all in the upbeats. It was given to me by my aunt and uncle who had spent time in Kenya when I was 10. Lucy and David were really my window into Africa as a continent, and they were in Kenya, so I was studying a lot of Kenyan culture just because I missed them, and I was, you know, 10 years old and wanted to learn about where they were. They are both in the medical profession. They always had people living in their house. When, uh, when I was a kid, there was always someone who uh, needed a place to stay, people who were refugees from uh, Tibet or Sudan later. Um, they really opened their family up to, to the resources that they had. Johnny Clegg is a white South African dude who, as he was growing up in South Africa under apartheid, um, learned to play music with black South Africans. He was performing with black performers in South Africa at a time when that wasn't something white South Africans did. And, and I think he was arrested a couple times, and I think part of that was being in places where he shouldn't have been, i.e., black neighborhoods. So he was there trying to learn. I mean, he learned the language that the song is in Zulu and learning the music of black South Africans. And that was absolutely frowned upon at that time. I really feel like musically it influenced what Tune Yards was going to become. Um, so much of the music to me sounds like what I do now, <laughs> um, almost embarrassingly so. But also the sense of trying to investigate what's my relationship as a white American kid to this music and to music that, um, that I literally, until today, when I looked up the lyrics, I had no idea what it meant. So um, that's really interesting to me, both that, you know, how much we can enjoy music that we don't understand lyrically, but also the kind of adventure and exoticism, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about, but as a white suburban kid, or as any American kid, just to be like, what is, what is this? Like, why, why haven't I heard anything like this before? singing about getting married and Emoliva, I guess, is at the specific river. You know, I, I think all the lyrics are this real gratitude for this new family that he's been welcomed into, which may, you know, I don't know the story of like his actual marriage and if this is a true story, but there's, you know, it makes me wonder about, um, about his relationship to black South Africans and this gratitude and, you know, I think there's a, that kind of spoken word part in the middle that it sounds like that's just people that, that are now part of his family. I 
I mean, I don't know if I have ever thought of heard a song that was just about that, about about the gratitude about marriage, about marriage in general. Aside from like, you know, my marriage didn't work out, man. Let me sing a sad song. <laughs> That's not what this is at all. But also, I think what I, you know, musically, what I take from from this song too is that the verses are all. They're pretty minor, you know. It's a, it's you don't you don't know until the first chorus comes that you're about to get this like super major chord, like glorious gratitude. And that's I love that too, where it's like it's it's actually more it's complex. It's not like oh everything's sunny and happy. I'm getting married. It's like it's it's intense. You know, I went through this intense ritual and was wedded to this person, and you know my father-in-law did this war dance. You know, like it's there's intense stuff in there too. Which you know, let's be real. Marriage is intense. Feels appropriate. When I got married to Nate, um, my husband and partner in Tune Yards, we didn't have a wedding. So it made me think about the lack of a wedding, actually. We snuck away to the uh, county courthouse <laughs> in Oakland, which felt like the right thing at the time. You know, our whole lives are, you know, celebrations and rituals. We do that every night for work. And I think Nate and I both um, were kind of tired <laughs> of being on stage but it makes me I think definitely feeling tied to another family feels like a, a very intense and important thing in actually truthfully listening to the song and, and reading the lyrics um, I did want to have an actual wedding <laughs> Also, is it any surprise that I married a bass player listening to that bass line? Like, that's the sickest bass line. So good. <laughs> Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards on the song that changed her life, Moliva by Johnny Clegg. Tune Yards' new album is called I Can Feel You Creep Into My Private Life. It drops January 19th. A little after that, the band sets off for a multi-month tour all over the world. We'll have dates and more up on our website. Just go to the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. If you want to share that Song That Changed My Life segment, we would love it if you did. You can find it on our Facebook page and on our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube. Let's take a listen to another song off of Tune Yard's new album. This one is called Look at Your Hands.
Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture recommendation from me. We call it the outshot. So when I was a kid, there was always a VHS copy of the movie The Commitments knocking around my dad's house. My dad and my stepmother just loved that movie. It was one of the only things they agreed on. My dad loves R&B. That's what the movie's about. My stepmother grew up poor in Ireland, and that's pretty much the other thing that the movie is about. And, of course, the way these things work out, I never actually watched The Commitments. I mean, as a teenager. I just didn't want to because my dad wanted me to. But as I entered my 30s, I found my resolve starting to wane. I love soul music as much as my dad does, and my stepmother's Irishness is a part of me as well. And so a few years ago, I picked up the novel, and then a few weeks ago, I bought the VHS tape at a thrift store. And I got to say, my dad and my stepmom were right. Well, what kind of music are we going to be playing, Jimmy? You're working class, right? You won't be at those on your work. So your music should be about where you're from and the sort of people you come from. Just speak the language of the streets. It should be about struggle and sex. And I don't mean mushy love songs about I'll hold your hand and love you till the end of time. I mean riding, tongues, the works. Jesus. What kind of music says all that? Soul. Soul? Soul. We're going to be playing Dublin Soul. Dublin Soul. If you haven't seen the film or read the book, it's about some teenagers in Dublin. One in particular named Jimmy Rabbit wants to start a band, but it's 1991 and New Wave is lame and Country and Western is lame and punk rock is kind of old news. So basically he puts an ad in the paper. He's looking for musicians with soul. It's going to be an R&B group. And then the randos start knocking on his mom's door. Who are your influences? Joan Bias, uh, Joni Mitchell. Uh... Wings. Mike Montone or Overdrive. Bandau Ballet. Soft cell. Sinead O'Connor. Mostly Jimmy Rabbit ends up with a band of folks from the neighborhood. And mostly they don't know from soul music, although one guy who's kind of old claims he toured in the States with some famous acts. Though that is kind of dubious given that he lives with his mom and also given that he wants to play with these teenagers. On screen, it's a motley crew. Only a few of the actors in the movie were actors before it, and only a few more than that were actors afterwards. The group of people that are in the movie feels like a real group of people, like some folks off the street who have some skill and some talent, but in normal human amounts. I mean, the good-looking ones are good-looking, but nobody looks like a movie star. Everybody feels immediately like somebody you could know if you were a Dubliner in 1991. So anyway, when Jimmy has his dozen folks together, a drummer and horns and so on and so forth, he's got to get them playing. And even if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably heard about this scene. It's the one where Jimmy convinces the band that they're allowed to play soul music. Do you not think, uh... Well, well, like... Maybe we're a little white for that kind of thing. Do you not get it, lads? The Irish are the blacks of Europe, and Dubliners are the blacks of Ireland, and the Northside Dubliners are the blacks of Dublin. So say it once, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Now, that scene is great, and it's quotable, and I definitely know some Irish people who are glad to quote it. 
But I don't exactly buy it. I mean, I don't think that the analogy actually holds. But that said, I also don't think it's quite meant to hold for us as viewers. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to believe that being Irish is actually truly equivalent to being black in America. Maybe the characters are supposed to sort of believe that. But, you know, they're teenagers. They're looking for an excuse to be in a band. They want to believe in something. I think the point for us is actually a bigger one. It's that soul isn't just blackness, although that's one way of defining it. It's also the temerity to create in the face of bleak and desperate circumstances. I mean, my stepmother's from Belfast, and I know that when she was growing up, it was bleak and desperate. And Van Morrison and Sinead O'Connor were always in heavy rotation around my house. They're from Belfast, too. And neither of them is quite a soul singer, exactly. But whatever you might think of them personally or think of their music, I don't think you could say that there's anything being held back there. That's two people who throw all that they have into everything that they do. And I think that's what The Commitments is about. I mean, I don't want to hit it too square on the head here, but that is The Commitment. The band is good, but they're never going to be the bar case, you know? They aren't particularly successful in the story. They don't go win a big battle of the bands. They don't get a record contract. They fight a lot. They have affairs like they were a bunch of 19-year-olds because they are a bunch of 19-year-olds. But they take some time out of their messed up lives and they get together and they make something without apology. And so The Commitments ends up being about the feeling of, of jumping off a cliff, of grabbing for something beyond your grasp, because it's worth trying. It's about throwing all of yourself into something, not because it's going to work, but because if it doesn't work perfectly, exactly, fine, who cares? At least you made something. That's actually not a bad working definition of soul for these purposes, that feeling that making something about what matters is what matters, that laying it out there is what matters, that even in pain and poverty, there's still something to be said for getting together and doing art. So when it doesn't work out for the commitments in the story, it's okay. The postscript tells us where the characters end up. Some of them go on to make music, some of them get jobs, some fall apart. Actually, that's not far from how it went with the real people who were in the movie. Some of them ended up acting. Some of them make music. Some of them make movies. One guy is, I think, a civil engineer. That's the magic of the commitments. It isn't about success or failure. It's just about trying to do something. Connecting with people, taking a swing, at making light in the world. Even if it only works out okay. Oh, she may be and young girls, they do get weary Wearing that same old shaggy dress But when she gets weary Try a little tenderness 
That's my outshot. You know she's waiting. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park in Los Angeles, California. Uh, big news, somebody crashed into a couple of parking meters along Wilshire Boulevard on New Year's Eve. Might have been tippling a little. But the repair people are already out there, so no free parking. Make sure you move your car before 4 p.m. Those parking tickets are no joke, folks. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Production fellow for MaximumFun.org is Jesus Ambrosio. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It was provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. They've got a new record on the way. They're going to come on the show. Uh, and it's a, gr- it's a great, it's a corker of an interview. I-, I already did it, so look forward to that. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. You can find them on our website, MaximumFun.org, wherever you download podcasts, or on our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube. And while you're at it, you can check us out on Facebook as well. We share all our interviews there, along with other interesting culture news that we find. Uh, I just posted a, a really interesting Alexis Madrigal article about how a guy took a picture of a stealth bomber doing a flyover of the Rose Bowl, which I thought was pretty amazing. Anyway, I guess that's it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.